how can we remember the past while still being cognizant of its impacts on the present and the future? I think that's really the driving question of, mm-hmm. of discordant memories and really in a lot of ways, the, the projects that have emerged from, from that book. I think that's just really important and central. This is the New Books Podcast of OUAH.FM. I'm Kim Marshall, Director of the Arts and Humanities Forum at the University of Oklahoma. In this episode, we feature a new book by Dr. Allison Fields, Associate Professor of Art History and Carver Professor of Art of the American West at the University of Oklahoma. Her book is called Discordant Memories, Atomic Age Narratives and Visual Culture. It was published in 2020 by the University of Oklahoma Press. I'm here with uh, Dr. Allison Fields. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. We appreciate it. So we're going to um, talk a little bit about the new book that just came out, um, and I want to take some time to really give you a chance to talk in depth about this. So talk to me a little bit about what this book is um, and what sort of the main ideas, what do you think are some of the take-home points that you really hope readers get out of this this book? Sure. So in my book, I argue that the history of developing and deploying the atomic bombs in the United States and Japan has been marked by what I call um, efforts to visually contain the trauma of the bombings. And I suggest that experiences of atomic trauma are ongoing and that the memories that they evoke can never be truly settled or contained. And I recognize that nuclear legacies are, are global in scope, but Discordant Memories focuses on sites in the American Southwest and in Japan, where the bombs were first created and used and are centrally positioned in atomic memory. I look at how national narratives in these two countries have determined how the bombs are remembered. And just to speak really broadly, American memories of the bombing emphasized victory in war and scientific achievement, while Japanese remembrances consolidated around understandings of global peace. And I highlight a number of case studies that I think show the complexity of atomic memory. They include the atomic bomb scarred bodies of the Hiroshima maidens, the Bradbury Science Museum in Los Alamos, New Mexico, the Hiroshima Peace Memorial Museum in Japan, the works of filmmakers Shinpei Takeda and Linda Hoagland, atomic photographers Patrick Nagatani and Carol Gallagher, and artists Will Wilson and Nanaba Becker. And taken together, I think these sites indicate how public memories of the atomic bomb take shape on human forms and physical spaces and across time. Yeah, and one of the things that I really thought was interesting in the book is that you talk about this, um, especially when you're talking about the museums, and maybe we'll take those up first, because I think the museums are something that's really easy to think about. It's a place people can go and often do go, right, especially the one when you're like visiting Japan, like I imagine it'd be like one of the main things that Americans would be interesting in, in, in seeing is the, is the Hiroshima Peace Memorial Museum, right? Like these are, these are big sites of public consumption of these narratives. So um, I'm wondering if you can talk about, uh, you, in those chapters, you talk a lot about this um, drive to a linear narrative versus the experience of trauma and how trauma is sort of like this cyclical process. So could you talk a little bit more about that and maybe give me some examples from those two museums about, about that sort of like linear drive versus what some of the artists are doing with this like drive towards a more complex cyclical trauma-based sort of um, trajectory? Yeah, I think that the museums in New Mexico and Japan are 
probably the the starkest contrast in these kind of fixed linear narratives about the bombings. Um, one really here in the U.S. really highlighting, uh, you know, the scientific achievement of of creating these weapons, and in Japan really focusing on the on the ground impacts, uh, the human impacts, which you really don't see in the um, which you really don't see in the museums in New Mexico. So, I mean, one of the things that I think what was driving me in this book was that this book came out in 2020. And so this is 75 years after the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And as these memories of these events are passed on to new generations, I think there's just like an urgency to consider these practices of remembrance in the, in the present day, as well as think about um, like look ahead to the future. And so by looking at these kind of different forms, like the museum exhibits, literature, art, photography. Um, I think it's a chance to, to look at places where um, that there have been these efforts to kind of have contained trauma in fixed narratives, but that there's all these kind of artists and individuals who are posing alternatives into showing how trauma kind of continues in, in individual experiences. And that just, it's so important in this, in this particular moment to be aware of just how trauma continues to impact people in the present and in the future. Yeah. And so can you talk a little bit, so the, your, your point is that those narratives in both Hiroshima and the Peace Memorial Museum and the Bradbury Science Museum are, are both sort of like closed, right? Like the, mm -hmm. the narrative is in the U.S. It was like, well, it's it's done, but it was great for science. And in, in, in Japan, it was it's done, but it was, you know, a, a good warning for world peace. Mm -hmm. Can you talk more about, um, I think that you really focus on Hiroshima Nagasaki download, the um, Takeda's work. Mm -hmm. yeah. Like how give us an example of what does an alternative look like? Because it's sometimes hard for us to imagine, okay, so like that's what that's what memorial is. Like what's what's an what's an alternative? Okay. Yeah, to talk about. I mean, I do feel like one of the best examples of what I'm trying to convey in my work is is can be seen in the work of Shinpei Takeda. And he's a, a Japanese filmmaker and artist that's based in Mexico and Germany. And he had this 2010 documentary, Hiroshima Nagasaki Download, where he travels with a friend from Canada to Mexico, and he interviews 18 atomic bomb survivors who lived on the west coast of North, or, I'm sorry, of North America. And so this documentary is part of a much bigger database that he has created doing interviews with bombing survivors in the Americas. And in the project, it's something um, that documents voices that are usual, usually, I would say, peripheral or not included in discussions of the bombings. Um, and so kind of in some ways, he's trying to get these voices on the margins um, that maybe wouldn't be featured as much in the um, in Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the museums there. Um, and then the other thing that he's really doing is thinking about the impact of being a listener to this trauma and like, what yeah. do you do when you're just like hearing these terrible stories over and over and over? And how does that impact you? And um, he sort of becomes a witness, right, to these narratives. And how do you carry that, especially when you haven't experienced that? Um, so what he does that I think is so interesting, um, in 2015, he had an exhibit called Anti-Monument at the Nagasaki Art Museum that um, addressed what he called the, the residue of listening to so many difficult testimonies. And he had it works from his Alpha Decay series, which he would take the, the voice prints of survivors. So actually like the literal voice prints of these uh, interviews that he did and 
hang them on large panels and you would hear all of the testimonies playing at once, just commenting on how difficult it is to make sense and just how like impactful it is to hear all of these stories. And he also showed work from his Beta Decay series, which features these huge, this huge string sculpture. And so as you asked about an alternative, um, the structure has these soft, flexible materials that counter the, the more solid materials that you would see, the concrete and metal of the piece parks. Um, there's a multitude of string representing a multitude of individual experiences of the bombing. Um, and just to think about anti-monument, really not as a rejection of monuments, it's not saying that these spaces of memory are bad, but just to try to think about like, how can you talk in a way that's more comprehensive to think about the challenges of witnessing? And again, just how do you think about these, these memories now and what, what will, like, way will they carry forward? Right. And I, I think it really inter is an interesting parallel to what you talk about with with trauma and what trauma studies has talked about, like the, the experience of something as as big and especially with Hiroshima, like I think it's probably worth mentioning, like that a lot of times you mentioned like and, and people have found like people have trouble articulating what happened just because it it was so new to the world. Like, how do you put something that into words that can be communicative? Right. Like it's completely new. But that he um, that trauma isn't like that isn't something that you can just purge, right? Like it's not something that just happens once and then it's done. Like it's a kind of um, a, a trauma that is is cyclical, repeated, constantly coming back, constantly, constantly being being dealt with, you know, in the cyclical kind of way. And that you are looking at people who are trying to to bring that to light. Right. Like <laughs> like like his works, the Decay series, like it, it, I think it's a really interesting parallel to that kind of, you know, um, that, you know, you have atomic decay, you have atomic, you know, like um, a, a, a con contamination that, co you know, constantly is is moving forward. And, and you have that also with trauma. You have a constant sort of like decay and that the trauma is also um, when it's imported to listeners. It also has this kind of cyclical, like constantly trying to deal with it with what you've heard. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about the, like how you came to this work. Like what is, I, 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 I thought, okay, we're going to interview, she's a professor of um, visual arts in the visual arts school, right? Like, and, and so I, I assumed that we were going to be talking about visual arts and then you're talking about, you know, a lot of different visual mediums and, and especially with the sound and how it becomes, you know, well, it's sound, it's an archive of testimonies. And yet, like, to kind of makes it like makes it a visual representation. I mean, it's just like fantastic how many different things that you cover. But can you talk a little bit about like what got you interested in all these sort of disparate strands and, and what you see as unifying them? Sure. Yeah, this actually started with a course that I took in graduate school. It was called The Atomic Bomb, Los Alamos to Hiroshima. Um, and it was taught by Gerald Visner. And I was actually coming from an American studies background. So maybe that <laughs> explains some of the um, diversity of forms that I, that I looked at. But he suggested that I write a research paper about the Hiroshima maidens, which are a group of young women who injured by the bombing who traveled from Hiroshima to New York City for reconstructive plastic surgery in 1955. And I just thought that this was, this was so interesting that there's an American effort to provide plastic surgery to young women who are 
injured by American technology in the first place in order to showcase American benevolence and return the women to quote unquote normal. Um, and that this just overlooked the kind of permanent scarring and internal transformation that the women had gone through as a result of the bombing. Mm -hmm. And just working on that project really prompted me to think about these public attempts for healing and closure after, after trauma and how they don't often reflect the ongoing realities of individuals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you, you say you have a great quote in the book that you talk about how, you know, like all of these attempts at campaign, you, you talk about containment and leaking a lot, which I think is a great metaphor. So like, d despite attempts at containment, these forms always leak. There's always this kind of leakage. Um, so maybe could you could you expand on that a little bit? So I think the the Hiroshima Maidens is one example of that, right? Like attempts at containment. And yet their stories are too complicated, their internal healing and even their external healing, as you mentioned as well, like even even with the reconstructive surgery, we weren't able to completely um, reconstruct their faces, right, or, or whatever, right? Like there's always, there were things that were um, just not able to, to be fixed, like after a trauma like this. But do you have other examples that you would like to highlight from the book that talk about this tension between containment and leaking? Uh, I mean, I think... Uh broad theme to consider is censorship and just how how so many things are kept from being visible. And so thinking about the Atomic Photographers Guild, for instance, is one of the um, one of the topics that I look at. It's kind of a group of international photographers who are trying to make these histories and these legacies visible in ways that they have often been suppressed. Um, I think the other work that I would highlight would be the work of uh, Navajo photographer Will Wilson, um, his series of um, artworks autoimmune response, which he started back in 2005 and is ongoing. And his series references the toxic consequences of uranium mining on the Navajo Nation, um, prompted by the arms race um, post-World War II, and just constructs this post-apocalyptic future. And so I feel like he is looking at kind of this really difficult legacy, but is ultimately posing um, a vision of, of growth and revitalization. And so he works with these large format digitally art, um, sorry, digitally altered photographs. And he kind of features himself, photographs himself in a gas mask, navigating these beautiful but contaminated surroundings. And he pairs that in his exhibitions with installations of a Hogan greenhouse, with weavings and videos. And just the thing that, although it's right, an apocalyptic narrative, um, his work, again, is really stressing the continuation of indigenous foodways. He's focused on food that's um, found in particular areas where he does these different, very um, different exhibitions. And just the, the tools that are needed for cultural survival, kind of going to the boundaries of the Navajo Nation, um, engaging in cultural practices, and that just even in the midst of environmental disaster, there is this opportunity opportunity for kind of growth and continuation. So in the book, you say, quote, the history of development and deployment of atomic bombs in the United States and Japan is marked by official efforts to contain the trauma caused by the bombings. This containment involves the closing off of past trauma to promote public healing and group unity. Containment is never complete, however, and is prone to leakages. Visual forms offer distinct possibilities for identifying strategies of containment and their ensuing leakages, unquote. 
And I think that's one of the things you're focusing on with the work of the Atomic Photographers Guild. Um, would you mind talking a little bit more about the Guild, especially along these lines of containment and leakage? Sure. So they're an international group. It, it, it's somewhat, I think, a loo- like a loose international group of photographers that and really just their mission is to make nuclear legacies visible, I guess, is, is the way that they that they would frame their, their vision on their website. Um, so there are some kind of honorary members, the kind of earliest nuclear photographers are included just kind of honorarily in this in this um, in this group. But right now, it's kind of photographers that are working across across the world. So, um, Japan, Marshall Islands, the, um, U.S., Canada, and um, there was a an exhibition in Toronto, um, Camera Atomica, I think in 2017, um, that showcased some of their work. But if you um, you can look at their website, and they track um, they track projects that are both group and individual. Um, so it's sort of an affiliation around this theme. One of the one of the photographers that I highlight is Carol Gallagher. Um, and she had a book that came out in the early 80s, American Ground Zero. And she went to different communities in the Southwest that were impacted by the um, Nevada test site and the testing that was, the atomic testing that was done in the area. And I think for for decades there had been this very official line that you know any health issues that were caused um, that it, that you couldn't make a direct linkage right between the radiation caused by the by the test um, by the atomic test and kind of lived experiences in the area and um, that there had been just a an expectation of people living in the area were kind of bound to these ideas of patriotism and kind of feeling like, you know, this is an experience I need to have for my country. Um, And at the same time that they were being subjected to um, being like virtually sacrificed, right. In these kind of um, just like a necessary sacrifice is that there would be these impacts to surrounding communities. But Carol Gallagher in American Ground Zero went out and took photographs of people that have um, that lived in the area um, surrounding the test site and showed just like story after story of people who'd had gone through experiences with with cancer, with birth defects, with um, like mutations in livestock. And I think just the cumulative um, impact of both the photography, which I think is like, you know, people do generally expect photography to tell a truth, right? Um, that there's this kind of physical proof of the images paired with um, narrative after narrative and testimony after testimony um, was really groundbreaking because so much of this had been so silent for so long. And I think, um, right, that's kind of the impact of um, having the, kind of the visual and verbal elements working together and just the power of the kind of cumulative nature of, of witness testimony can really overturn what I think has been a legacy of silencing and censorship in the Southwest. Right. And it was complicated there, right? Like we're talking about communities and like ranching communities in rural Utah that are very conservative, religiously, mm-hmm. often Mormon um, yes. communities. And mm-hmm. yeah, and that that sort of um, just accepted status quo of not talking about it, like it's, it's really difficult. And she re- met a lot of resistance as well, right? Like she she did. Yes. Yes. Not, it was not an easy project for her at right. all. <laughs> Well, um, I want to talk to you about uh, unexpected places that the book 
tuck you, and I um and I bet that Mars wasn't some place that you uh, <laughs> entirely expected to go. So I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about about that about about the role of of Mars in in this particular um, project, um and and what kind of um, other unexpected things maybe through sure. the doing of it. Yeah, um, I was participating in um, the the Native Crossroads Film Festival some years ago, and was the the commenter, um, as it turned out, on Nanaba Becker's the the Sixth World um, short film, and it just strikes me in so many so many ways. I mean, I think it pairs nicely with the discussion of Will Wilson's work in thinking about. Um, Right, we're not right? even when we face disaster in in one space that that's not the end. That there's kind of these future uh, potentialities, and so Mars turns out to be like conflated here with with Monument Valley. Right, it becomes it becomes the same place, but um, is an opportunity kind of for future for future growth for literally the the next world um, after after disaster. And I mean, in general, in thinking about unexpected places. Uh, I mean, this was a project that really developed over time for me um, over quite quite a few um, quite a few years, and I had come to a place where I thought that I really felt like the project was done. And then I I taught a dream course titled Nuclear Legacies with Alyssa Faison, um, professor of modern Japan here at OU, and. It was just not only a really amazing learning experience, but ended up really extending the scope of my project. So Shinpei Takeda was one of our guest lecturers, along with Linda Hoagland and Will Wilson. Their work became part of my book. And that to me was not something I anticipated, but think created a, a much stronger final, you know, final project in the end to have their work be part of what I was doing. And well, it was not unexpected. I mean, I certainly had the, I had the opportunity to travel to Hiroshima and Nagasaki, as well as to help with a special a couple of specialized courses in New Mexico, which dealt with the atomic bombing. So, I felt like those experiences over time just ended up enriching enriching the project. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I mean, I do. We did kind of um, zoom past museums, although I, I do think mm-hmm. it is important. Do you mind if we wrap back around to? <laughs> to yeah, the museums sure. to talk in those a little bit more detail, especially um, in the, the types of narratives that are deployed at both of those museums, the Hiroshima um, Peace Memorial Museum and the Bradbury Science, and, and why you focus, maybe you could start there. What, what is it about the Bradbury Science Museum in Los Alamos that is is the reason you feature it as opposed to sort of the National Museum in Albuquerque? And, and, mm-hmm. and what are the sort of con- contrasts between those two? Yeah. Um, so I do, I mean, I do look at the National Museum in, in Albuquerque as well, um, but I felt like the the strongest kind of sharpest contrast was really between the Bradbury Museum and the Hiroshima Muse- Museum and then museums in Nagasaki and Albuquerque, I felt like played played similar roles in supporting those narratives, but maybe weren't quite as um quite as sharp, I guess, in the in the contrast. Um, so the Bradbury Science Museum is the, the public arm of Los Alamos National Laboratory. And um, it's a smaller museum, about 100,000 people a year would, would go to that museum versus right a much, much larger audience in, in Hiroshima. Um, and the Bradbury Museum is organized into a history gallery, a research gallery, and a defense gallery. Um, and there's a really clear narrative in the Bradbury Science Museum supporting the the goals of the of the laboratory and really stressing the importance of maintaining a reliable 
nuclear weapons that could serve as a deterrent from, from attack. Um, whereas in uh, Hiroshima, there, there actually was a newer wing added in the 90s because people critiqued that there was not enough kind of context around, around the narrative that was presented. But kind of the, the central narrative, I would say, starting with starts with the moment of the bombing and traces individual um, individual stories, especially if you're listening to the to the audio guide. Um, and then you're seeing artifacts like the carbonized lunchbox, these sort of the um, tricycle that was buried in a yard, these kind of famous artifacts. And then listening to the stories about you know what it would have been like to for a child, how, how far they were, like kind of tracing the experience of individual survivors, how far they were from the, the hypocenter. Um, how people would be recovered, and it might be because they had their name inside of a tag on a hat or something, or something like that. So just immediately, kind of starting with the the human impact on the ground. Um, now there's additional information that uh, kind of sets up. This is what was happening in wartime. That these were the decisions at play in um, in dropping the bombs, and leads you up more to that experience um, of that kind of on the on the ground moment. Yeah. And you talk about this a little bit different, that that tends to be, aside from a celebratory um, technology celebration um, on the American side and, and sort of a, a you know, a, a world peace emphasis on the Japanese side, mm-hmm. you also talk about those problems of scale. And so sort of as sort of like a visual historian, can you talk about that, those those problems of scale um, and, and how they're to play, how they're, how they're depicted, like the visual images that we associate in America and and how they're far away uh, versus yeah. in in Japan how they're like cl- more close to the ground. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, so first of all, I mean, when you're thinking about like remembering a history, it's a, it makes a really big difference where you start and where you end your your story. So, I mean, that's something that I think is a consideration in the museum in Albuquerque to start like you know a gazillion years ago thinking about the, the atom, um, but in thinking about kind of the visual scale, um, there's a historian John Dower that talks about the kind of from above and on the like from below um, dichotomy of a lot of ways that the um, that the bombing has been presented. So in Japan, right, you have more of the kind of on the ground um, from the moment of the bombing forward uh, visual representations, whereas in um, the US, I mean, for for quite some time, um, there was censorship, and you weren't seeing any of these any of these images. But um, the images that you were seeing more uh, prevalently in the U.S. were these images of ruined buildings, um, these kind of aerial photographs. There was nothing that showed or suggested any of kind of the human impact of the of the bombings. Yeah, and the mushroom cloud, like the iconicity mm-hmm. of the mushroom cloud, I think is something that you you highlight that I hadn't really. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I think is so interesting is at once it's like this very hidden history, but then it's also this like extremely visible history. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there was something like three quarters of the world's film was used up in um, the the photographing the mushroom clouds in um, in the Bikini Islands. I mean, mm-hmm. it was just some like these images and there was news knob at the Nevada test site where um, photographers could come out and at a set distance take photographs. So, I mean, these images were circulating, right? During the, mm-hmm. during the years of testing that everyone would see them, but seeing a dramatic um, kind of the dramatic spectacle of the mushroom cloud doesn't really tell you anything beyond, beyond that moment. 
Right, right. And it doesn't tell you about the lived experience mm-hmm. of, of the impacts of that, the way that like Carol Gallagher, the, the nuclear photographers have featured. Mm-hmm. Can you um, talk about, I mean, I, I don't, again, don't want to get too current events-y, but mm-hmm. like broad strokes, what do you think that the lessons of your book are for the present moment? Like what can we learn from this period in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s? You know, like what, what does this teach us for, for now? Yeah. Um, I think, again, just that that nuclear legacies are, they're ongoing, right? They're global in scale. I start my book with this quote from Takeda, where he says, the memories of about the bomb were not about some faraway place a long time ago. The memories live on in Japan and in numerous different countries around the world, just as the threat of nuclear weapons continues to live on for all human beings. Um, so concerns about weapons development and warfare, nuclear waste storage, nuclear power are all just really present in our world, especially at this moment. Um, And, you know, they're often tied to and intersect with other environmental challenges. And I think by highlighting artists and creators that, that make these legacies visible, I hope we can break through any perceptions that the atomic bombs are something that should, should be relegated to, to history. Right. Or can be. Right. Exactly. <laughs> like con- contained. Yeah. Um, so then uh, last question about the book. Like I, I, I'm curious about what you're working on now and what, what's next for you and what projects you're involved in now. Sure. Yeah. So I just completed a, a co-edited volume with Alyssa Faison um, that's titled Resisting the Nuclear Art and Activism Across the Pacific. And it's under review right now. Um, and that's an interdisciplinary volume. It emerged from our dream course. So some of our some of our speakers are highlighted, uh, but it features historians, artists, and activists that are working on the American West and Japan, and also the Marshall Islands plays a bigger a bigger role in this project, all of which in some way deal with resistance to nuclear regimes. And I contributed an essay called Food Cultivation as Artistic Activism After Nuclear Disaster. And so I'm still thinking about some of the issues in the, in the Southwest, but also looking at um, Japanese artists who made a soup made with vegetables from um, from Fukushima and then at a contemporary art fair in London um, made the soup and questioned whether people would come and, and eat this and kind of um, think about our, our comfort levels, right? Um, and perceptions of contamination. Um, so the next thing that I'm hoping to do, one of our collaborators on that project was uh, Peter Goen, who's a member of the Photographers Guild, and we're hoping to work on a book-length examination of the Atomic Photographers Guild. So those are some kind of ongoing projects in this vein. I'm also working on some journal articles right now about public memorialization in the American West. Um, one of, I'm just working on a piece, um, or have finished a piece about uh, Don Juan de Oñate in New Mexico, and another that deals with Civil War memorialization in Arizona. Um, and last week I was did a virtual roundtable for the American Historical Association um, on monuments, colonial violence, and global histories. So those are kind of the tracks of, of what I'm what I'm looking to do next. So thanks very much to Allison Fields for sitting down with us today. You can find Discordant Memories at the University of Oklahoma Press website at www.oupress.com or wherever you buy your books. The New Books Podcast of OUAH.FM is produced by Kimberly Marshall and Anna Reeser. Andrew Smith is our editor. 
Additional production assistance by Miriam Koulibaly. OUAH.FM is a collection of audio resources created by the Arts and Humanities Forum at the University of Oklahoma. To learn more, see show notes and transcripts, and catch up on the latest episode, visit ou.edu slash humanitiesforum. You can also check out our topical podcast series, Staying with the Question. OUAH.FM is funded in part by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. To learn more about NEH programs, visit neh.gov. You can follow the Arts and Humanities Forum on Twitter at OU Humanities and on Facebook at OU Humanities Forum. If you have questions about today's episode, send us an email at humanities.forum at ou.edu. The OU Arts and Humanities Forum supports and promotes innovative, interdisciplinary humanities research that seeks to understand and transform our world. At the Forum, we're dedicated to OU's mission to change lives. We support humanities and arts education as vital pathways for training Oklahoma students in critical and creative thinking, clear and compelling writing, and observant and empathetic engagement. These are the fundamental skills needed by tomorrow's leaders.